I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast. We are coming to you live from Edmond, Oklahoma. This uh, Friday is probably when some of you are listening to this, but uh, um, we are recording on a Thursday. That's right. Right before the game. Right before Oklahoma City Thunder beats Miami Heat again for the second time in a row. Second time. By the time we do this broadcast and the next broadcast, we will be either it'll be over yeah, right. Yeah. And folks, this is just the place to be. I'm in Oklahoma City. We've got Sam Storms, Bridgeway Church. We've got Oklahoma City Thunder. And to top it all off, we've got the Credo House. This is the place to be. But now. please, people, if by some quirk of providence the heat wind tonight, don't yeah. come stoning Tim for <laughs> false prophecies. <all> right? <laughs> well, it'd, it'd be more significant. Would you care to make any predictions, Sam? Uh, I'm not into that sort of thing. <laughs> It's you, yeah. guys, you guys are the ones. Yeah, oh, that's good. good. It's it's fun though. It's it, there really is an excitement in the air here in Oklahoma City, and that's it's just fun. It's fun to be able to get behind something, and uh, you know, it's just a, a shadow of the kingdom of God being able to get behind a winning team. Yeah. Well, it's the state's only professional sport. Yeah, and uh, the whole states, not just the city, uh, have just come alive. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. Tim's gotten into it. He's uh, required us to wear our thunder thunder jerseys or t-shirts. Yep, on Ev- game days. Every game day, the entire Credo House staff were were in blue. We had blue whipped cream for all of our lattes on uh, last Tuesday, right? Yes, which was kind of funny because we're teaching on the end times on t- Tuesday night. We have a pretty full Credo House, and everybody has blue mouths, and you know, it just it was. was kind of a end of the world type experience. <laughs> I don't know about an end of the world type experience, but yes, it was interesting to see everybody's blue mouths. (laughs) All right, what are we talking about today? Um, We are going to continue our discussion about difficult passages. I guess we could do this indefinitely on these discussions, but there's a few of them I think that stand out quite a bit. You know, we've been doing some, uh, I've been doing some pet peeves here and there that uh, are difficult passages for me and things that I've heard, but I think the ones that we're going to be covering today are passages that uh, are pretty well universal thought of as uh, difficult passages. But uh, before we get into that, um, what was I going to ask Sam? Oh, you've got your your internship coming up, right? Is Mm -hmm. that coming up? Starts in September. Pastoral internship, right? Just tell me a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people would be interested to hear, because I think it's something really unique that you do, and I'm I'm really excited every time I hear about it. Um, I take uh, nine men. um, Is it always nine? Yeah, that's because of the size of the room. <laughs> there are only 10 seats at the table. I was getting ready to ask something more, figure out why nine. And really, that's the maximum that I can take because yeah. I, I spend a lot of time with them individually. and My schedule won't allow any more than that. Uh, but I take in nine guys, and we go from September through the end of April, sometimes into the early part of May. And uh, it's primarily for those who feel a call to church plant or to be pastoral ministry. Although it's not restricted to them, that's primarily the, uh, give them priority. Um, when it comes to the, to the selection process. And we just immerse ourselves in theology and ecclesiology and pastoral ministry and issues of personal holiness and character development and everything that goes into what it means to be a pastor of a local church. How long does that last? Um, we'll, it, we meet on Thursday nights for around three hours every week, and uh, it lasts about eight, nine months. 
Which I think is amazing. I mean, you know, what we sometimes we surprise people at the Credo House and just the things that we do. People just don't think it's practical. And what's so amazing, Sam, you, you just show that, uh, especially for leaders, for people around the country who might be listening to this, that you know our thoughts, our ideas have consequences. And you're able to to bring in a group of guys and to really uh, bring them through this journey. And uh, there are pastors that are in Oklahoma City and outside of Oklahoma City uh, that have been through your internship and have been benefited through that. So I just think it's really great to just have such a practical element to our lives. I mean, our heads and our hearts and our hands all mixed together, and I think this internship's a great thing. I know one of our baristas is applying for your internship, and he was telling me how much he's hoping to get in. So That's the hard part. I've got probably, I'll have 25 to 30 minimum applicants, all really solid young men. I can only take nine, so that's the bad part is you have to. You can get them next year, too, right? That's true. They can always try for that. Well, if somebody comes back to you three or four times in a row, you probably won't deny them the fourth time quite so much unless there's just something really wrong with them, right? they're continually more and more belligerent. (laughs) (laughs) They throw their application through a brick in the window. (laughs) It's kind of like the uh, American Idol. You know, you come back for an interview the next year, the next year, and, you know, one of these days... uh, Sam, will we'll get you through. You'll have a panel of three people up there, you know, and you'll be the <laughs> Simon Cowell. And, what uh, makes you think you can be a pastor? <laughs> I'd rather be the Paulo Abdul. <laughs> we'll just leave that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I, I did want to bring that up because I'm interested in that. I do think uh, – well, one of the things I think is that you know, people uh, can, by example, look towards that sort of stuff and be more intentional. I was very impressed whenever – at Stonebriar, you know, they t- took on that residency program that I was able to go through and uh, think it's something so essential because you can, you know, seminary prepared me to have uh, a, a piece of paper that said he knows what needs to be known, but there is a sen- certain sense of uh, uh, approval process that you go through and mentoring that we need to mm-hmm. go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seminary gives you the answers to the questions that nobody's asking. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, but we still think you should go there. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking today a couple passages. First one, uh, no, we're only going to be talking about one passage. That's we right. One passage That's per right. time. Hebrews chapter six. Uh, this is uh, comes in a grouping, I think, of passages we often call the the problem passages or warning passages in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is a is a book that. Uh, uh, has no lack of problem passages, but I think they all kind of come back to the same basic theme of uh, warning. And whenever the person who is reading this that gets a little bit uptight while they're reading it, they normally uh, get uptight for one reason. And the question becomes, gosh, does this mean that I might be able to lose my faith. Does this mean in this particular passage that I might be able to get to a point where I cannot come back to the Lord? And I think we've all gotten there because here's the thing what we discover in the Christian life is that the Christian life is very tough, that um, most of the time uh, it is, we don't find it easy to overcome the difficulties and the sins in our life. Many of the, Much of the time we find it very difficult to to keep a, a level of belief. Uh, sometimes we go through periods of doubt. Sometimes we, we rebel uh, to some degree against the Lord. And then we come to a passage like this that we're going to be talking about. We're going to say, how does this fit within my own spiritual experience in my life, and how am I to integrate this into my theology? How about if I read the passage? Is that good? Yeah. Okay, Hebrews 6, uh, starting in verse 4. Uh, For it is impossible... 
in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So he said it's impossible, and now is saying to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up him up to contempt. So the passage seems to be saying that once you have tasted of God and fallen away, it's impossible to re- be restored again to your current state or to the state you were before. Before uh, we talk about that, Tim, I have to give kudos once again to your dramatic reading of Scripture. Have you been That's practicing? Just, have you read something recently? Because this has been twice now in one week where you are placing <laughs> emphasis, and I mean, who have dude, tasted? Dude, that's just that's just how I feel. That's just how I feel it. Okay. I'm letting you letting you in on my feelings. Did you catch that? I did. I was I was in awe. <laughs> Would you like me to read again? Do you have a phone book that no, I could it's read? Okay. It's okay. We'll pass on. That. Uh, so, so Sam. What By the way, you stopped with verse six. Yeah. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah. Let me keep going. Okay. okay. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And the reason why we read down through verse 9 is I happen to believe that the solution to understanding verses 4 through 6 is found in verses 7 through 9. And we'll come to that in a moment. Explain the problem. Have I explained the problem well or extend on the problem? Uh, Just give us another. I mean, the the problem really is, okay, I I, I believe I'm a believer. I believe that I'm a believer in Christ. And if I have a period of life that I feel like I'm falling away, just maybe mentally, I'm not like what you explained. Maybe I'm experiencing doubt or things like that. Is Hebrews 6 telling me that I could have basically once I have achieved this level of salvation where I feel the warm fuzzies, I believe I'm a son or a daughter of of the King of Kings, uh, then now that I've fallen away, basically saying, Saying God is going to turn His back on me. So the 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 question is is that is that truly what can happen? Now Sam's already alluded to uh, here that Paul later says that uh, in your case I, I'm I feel sure of better things, things that lead to salvation. But the but the true problem here is just is this true of a believer? Can someone that you know that someone who you believe has been a, was a believer at one time, maybe when they were in high school, maybe when they were in college, and then have fallen away, is it impossible to restore them again? Huh. And he did tell us Paul wrote this, didn't he? Yeah, I think that was a, a little inspirational moment. <laughs> <laughs> we will just simply refer to the author. <laughs> Tim will refer to Paul and we will say the author. Yeah, I, yeah, just, the, I don't even remember saying that, so it must have been the Spirit speaking through me. <laughs> Yeah, it is a it's a fascinating passage, and I think as we'll as we'll get into this, what it reveals to us is the essential uh, importance of the doctrine of what we call the common grace of God. Um, I don't think many Christians fully grasp how important it is to understand the extent to which the Spirit of God can influence and shape and bring conviction to the hearts of men and women and yet they not be regenerate. Um, and that's what we're going to have to get into in, in view of the descriptions that are the descriptions found in verses 4 and 5 of these individuals. 
Yeah. What are the key questions? Key questions. Uh, I, I can think of a couple. Number one, is this a believer he's talking about? You know, mm-hmm. I know that John MacArthur says no. This is not a true believer. This is this is someone who's tasted but has yet to swallow. Mm-hmm. In other words, and by the way, just so people know, we haven't talked about this verse in advance, so we may have differing interpretations of it. That is fun. true. That is true. I think we'll probably all come down on the same side at the very end, uh, considering our shared Calvinism, but. Uh, it is. It is going to be different people, different different interpretations. Um, I forget what J. Vernon McGee's, because J. Vernon McGee for years in the early 90s was just my go-to. I thought he was the only person who ever wrote a commentary and come to find out it wasn't even really a commentary, but he was the only one I went to. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I know that there are some key questions. Let me start out with a couple of observations. As I mentioned a moment ago, I, I do believe the, the solution to the problem is found in the broader context. Oftentimes people just read verses 4 through 6 and they're just stumped and, and, and concerned. But listen to what our author says beginning in verse 7. For, he gives an illustration of two types of land. He says, for land that has drunk the rain. And by the way, the drinking of the rain, I think, is the author's Illusion uh, back to verses four and five, and the experiences of here's an individual who's been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then in the analogy that follows, drink the land that drinks in the rain, it's, a, it's referring to those experiences. And he says, For the land that has drunk the rain, or for the person who's been the recipient of those kinds of spiritual experiences that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, and I think that phrase links us back up to verse 6 and the falling away. But if land receives these blessings and it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So I see uh, the author here saying, let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Um, here is a person who is showered, as it were, to keep the uh, illustration, the metaphor in place, who is showered with all these spiritual blessings. And he brings forth a useful crop. He brings forth a great harvest. Yet another person is showered with these blessings, and the land only bears thorns and thistles, that's worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And I think he's ha- drawing our attention to two types of individuals. Um, those who receive these kinds of spiritual blessings, and instead of bringing forth fruit, instead of responding in a way that yields a great spiritual harvest, as he says in verse 6, they fall away. And the statement, it's impossible to restore them to repentance, um, and they hold out the Son of God uh, uh, to, to be despised unto their own harm. They hold him up to contempt. That corresponds to the land being worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then he says immediately following in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, in other words, though I've just been talking about people who receive these kinds of spiritual blessings, and yet they do not produce a fruitful harvest, but in fact openly re-crucify Jesus and subject him to contempt and shame. Although I'm speaking in that way, in your case, beloved, notice the contrast, 
we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So when he says, in your case, I'm confident of better things, namely things that relate to salvation, meaning what I just described does not relate to salvation. And the writer of Hebrews, by using the term beloved, seems like that's going to be to the church more than written just to, oh, he really loves this area that he's sending this letter to. Right. And then if you wonder what he means by when he says, we feel sure of better things, I think he outlines them in verses 10 and following. He talks about your work, your love, the way you serve the saints, the fact that you experience full assurance of hope, you're not sluggish, you're imitators of others, you inherit the promises. So I see a, a real contrast in our author's writing. He envisions as the, in the same way that there are two kinds of land that yield two different responses to these spiritual blessings. So likewise, there are two different kinds of people, some who are the recipients of these spiritual graces, um, unfortunately, do not press forward unto full faith and salvation, but repudiate Christ, and for them it's impossible to renew them to repentance. But of you, brethren, he says, beloved, I am confident of better things and those that pertain to salvation. It says, those that fall away, <clears throat> and then it is impossible to renew them to repentance. I think we're dealing with two different problems, right? I think you take away first the... Um, the uh, uh, to them that fall away, uh, and what does that mean to fall away? You know, having received these things, then fall away to stumble along the wayside. Um, and then you say, why is it impossible to renew somebody to repentance? Mm-hmm. Those are the two separate kind of, but very related problems, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because if you just if you let's take away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Then. We've got still a problem, but it's not quite so shocking because we're really scared about, wait a minute, how do I get past that point? It goes back to the unforgivable sin, doesn't it, that people think of. Mm-hmm. People automatically think, have I committed this to where it is impossible for me to come back? And so I think on the table, again, is that issue with regard to this passage and then the issue with regard to like Sam was talking about it. Now, Sam, whenever you talk about it, would it be right to say the analogy of the soils or yes. the parable of the soils is in play? Yeah. In fact, I would, I would argue that um, I think most of our listeners are familiar with the parable of the soils, and there are four types of soil. In my opinion, the way I read it, only the fourth is truly regenerate, born again, saved, that actually brings forth fruit. Um, and I think the description in verses 4 and 5 of uh, Hebrews 6 is referring to any one of the first three types of soil. Now, in the first three types of soil, we've got the first one, obviously, that Satan came, and before anybody could have any sense of belief. So I don't think we would say that there's any partaking of the Holy Spirit like we have in this passage, right? There's there's no sense of, uh, of uh, have become partakers of the age to come. Mm-hmm. It's Satan came, took it away. Yeah. However, would you say the second and the third soil, where we have the the uh, weeds, and you have the rocks. Both of those are something to where your faith has immediately sprung up, but difficulties in life come about. And therefore, the falling away is a sinful falling away. But what is the ultimate sin that is being uh, committed here? Um, And relate that to Hebrews. Because the question in Hebrews oftentimes is, what is the sin? What has happened? Mm. Um, 
if they have become made partakers, what does the trampling underfoot mean? Well, and we know from the book of Hebrews that these people were were experiencing persecution as well. That uh, that these people were were being encouraged in a way to not fall away in a time of of a persecution that was locally happening. So I think for some of them, for cer- for sure, a falling away was in the midst of persecution, uh, basically denying Christ in some whatever that would look. Look like at that time, uh, so that they wouldn't lose their houses and things like that, so that they could just keep up with the Joneses, basically. Uh, one of my old professors at Dallas, uh, you probably heard this, um, said that in characterizing this book, he said Hebrews is a book written by a Hebrew to Hebrews, telling them to stop being Hebrews. Hmm. And his point of that was, he's appealing to them not to remain in their in their Judaism, but to move into a full embrace of Jesus as the Messiah. So it's not about abandoning your racial or ethnicity, uh, your ethnic identity. It's about uh, moving from your Jewish uh, convictions into a full Christian recognition of Jesus as Messiah. And so I envision what our author is describing here is something that, amazingly, we see all the time in the church today. You have people who maybe even were raised in the life of the church. Their parents brought them on a regular basis. They're exposed to the teaching of Scripture. They memorize text. They go to Awana. You know, they're involved in the youth ministry. Uh, They go on short-term mission trips. Um, They have, for years, been surrounded by people who truly know Christ. They're influenced by born-again people. There's a sense in which they are under the umbrella of God's grace. Um, They experience the uh, presence of the Spirit in worship. They might even have experienced a healing. I mean, there's no reason to think that everybody that Jesus healed when he was on the earth came to know him in a saving way. In fact, we know that's most likely definitely not the case. They might have been healed. Uh, They might have been enlightened to understand a great deal about the Christian faith. And yet they've never been born again. Mm-hmm. And it strikes some people as odd to think that that occurs, but this is what we mean by the common grace of God. Well, and we see that in Scripture where Jesus heals the lepers, tells them to go, and sure. only one returns. Right. And so he physically healed others, but in a theological sense, only one was better off. Right. Because only one grew closer to Christ through the experience. Yeah, and I think that that's what's happening here. I think we're being given a description of people who have... And again, people think that we're minimizing these descriptive phrases in verses four and five, and we're not. I'm gonna. I believe that a non-regenerate, non-born again uh, person can, in fact, be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to understand a great deal of the truth of the gospel and be made partaker yeah. in a sense. Even though you you we're not saying you're going to experience the the forgiveness and full redemption, but to be part, made a partaker in the community of the church is a big deal, especially in the context of what we're talking about here, relating it to Israel. To whoever was a foreigner was a partaker in the blessings of Israel, even though they may not be a believer. They can legitimately share in some dimension of the Spirit's power and His ministry. Think about Matthew seven, where Jesus acknowledged mm-hmm. uh, seemingly that these unbelievers had prophesied and cast out demons and done great works in his name. Uh, Now, some would say they did it by the power of Satan, but they could have done it by the common grace of God. Um, And so I think that he's describing here people who have, in a sense, come to the very brink of conversion. 
They have been immersed in the life of the church, exposed to the truth of God's word. They've tasted it. They've experienced, uh, not just witnessed, but actually experienced the powers of the, of the coming age. And yet they haven't been born again. And I think that's a very real possibility that happens far more often than we imagine. And I think our author is saying, when you come to the very brink, and yet at that point, instead of fully embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior, you turn your back and openly and utterly repudiate him and harden your heart against him and do a 180 and head the other direction. That's the kind of individual that he's having that he's talking about here. That's the experience, I think, that he has in view. Sam, you alluded to Matthew 7. I think that there there is a lot in Matthew 7 that can uh, shed some light on this as well, because here um, he, he says clearly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So even people who are calling him Lord, uh, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then this is what he declares. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, I knew you for about three years, and then you fell away, and now I didn't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. Right. Uh, and so it would seem that there was no time when someone who he'll cast away ever really knew him. And one other thing to keep in mind, um, you know, people um, have a great deal of concern about these descriptive phrases in verses 4 and 5, and they say, boy, it just sounds like Christian experience. Well, in a sense it is, because everybody who is a Christian has experienced verses 4 and 5. Mm. So we're not saying that a Christian has not experienced these realities. We're saying it's possible for a non-Christian to experience them. That's good. And then another point, we need to ask the question, what is not said in verses 4 and 5? Notice here that, and in fact, if you look um, um, at the expanse of the teaching in Hebrews of all the descriptive phrases to, uh, of Christians, It says, for example, things like God has forgiven their sins, he's cleansed their consciences, he's written his law in their hearts, um, he's given them an unshakable kingdom, he's pleased with them, they have faith, hope, love, they worship God, uh, they obey God, they persevere, they enter God's rest, they know God, they are God's house, they share in Christ. None of that language is found here. Nothing about being justified, nothing about being adopted, nothing about being redeemed. So as as important and significant as are these statements of what they experienced, just stop and think about the genuine Christian experience that is nowhere described here. Yeah. That, is, that is, I think, significantly left out. Which I think is exactly why and why no preacher will ever run out of things to preach, because I think we know that our tendency is to look at the outside and God looks at the inside. You know, So we can have someone who has the all the bracelets on their wrists, the, they're wearing the Jesus t-shirts, they're going to church, they're raising their hands, they're doing all those things, but uh, we have to continually realize that the center of the Christian universe is not the Christian experience, but it is Christ. And if Christ is not the center and experience is the center instead, you have the wrong thing that you're putting your hope in. You can't say, well, I'm doing all the Christian things, so I'm a Christian. It's like, no, the only Christians are those who have Christ at the center of their lives. And I think that's why, uh, uh, and we can too easily settle for far less. And we settle for looking like Christians 
as opposed to uh, rejecting that and instead only uh, putting our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I know, Tim, that brings it down from 30,000 feet to about 10,000 feet. (laughs) Let me go back up 10,000 feet again. Okay. okay? Um, Real briefly, uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. We could go over the the so-called warning Mm -hmm. passages in Hebrews, but let me just give you a couple more because I know a lot of you all are listening to this and you're saying, yeah, but there's also this and this and this. And I want to try to tie these together, Sam uh, and Tim, and see if we can't figure out what is, is there a common warning? Do they all really warn of the same thing? In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How was that? Falls away. Is that That's good, good. That's pretty dramatic. Thanks, brother. And also, you've got one that uh, stands out in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 26, that says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth. Can we pause there for a moment? Mm-hmm. Receiving being made partakers, tasting of the age to come, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, um, and there deliberately keeps on sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for us. Now, that's also tied within this. I mean, and then falls away, and then there's, there's no longer any way to renew them to repentance. The sin that is going on here, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, the, the ultimate sin that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the same sin that Israel was entering into as they were going through the promised land and towards the promised land and, and surrounded by the power of God, being led by a, a pillar of uh, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, partaking of the great things of God. But the ultimate sin is that of unbelief, Right. Yeah, because I think that that is the ultimate thing that God seeks for in humankind. Mm. There are times when he says, your works are filthy to me. Your sacrifices, please stop doing them. What I want is your heart. I want your faith. I want your belief. I don't want your actions. Because if I have your belief, your actions will follow. But if all you're giving me are your actions, it's it's stinking the place up. Mm. Let me me just add to that. both a word of, um, in a sense, a word of warning and also a word of assurance. Michael, you were citing from um, Hebrews 3, verse 12, uh, in that warning there, and it immediately follows. In light of that, he says, but exhort one another in view of this possibility of mm-hmm. falling away. Be, be very concerned about the, the spiritual condition of, your, of, your, of the people you know. But then he says this in verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. Notice the past tense. Not we will come. We have already come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So his point is, if you don't hold your original confidence firm to the end, that means you never had come to share in Christ in a saving way in the first place. To have come to share in Christ in a truly saving way is in evidence or proven by your perseverance in the faith. And then one other passage that I think is really important, and this is maybe this is just a word to those listening who are living in doubt and fear that maybe someday they're going to um, repudiate Christ and expose him to open shame, as Hebrews 6 describes. And, And this is the promise of the new covenant. This is an incredibly glorious promise. It's at the very end of Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 20. 
Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So here he is saying that this is the foundational promise to us that comes from the truth of the new covenant that was sealed by the blood of Christ. Here's what he says. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So here is this this promise that God, by virtue of the shed blood of Christ and the new covenant, will enable those who have put their faith in him to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. So it is ultimately God who is at work in us. And this comes back to our Reformed theological convictions. Mm -hmm. Here is the promise, not so much of the perseverance of the saints, but the preservation by the Savior. God is going to work in his children that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ and thus secure them safe unto the end. So uh, I would just, I was, that's a, an incredibly reassuring truth to me to know that no matter how I may, how far I may fall, no much how much I may backslide, how much struggle there may be, how much doubt may fill my heart, that if I've truly been born again, God will, through Christ, continue to work in me that which is pleasing in his sight unto the end. And I, I think too, if you're if you're listening to this, if you're driving your car, whatever you're doing right now, as you listen to this and you start having this fear come over you, I think the greatest thing that you can do is just believe today, uh, believe in Jesus as your Savior, put your trust in Him. Um, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, have Him be the center of your life and live for Him, and uh, realize that the the best time ever to plant a tree is 20 years ago, and the second be- best time to plant a tree is today. And so uh, just do it. Put your trust in Christ as your Savior. Because in the end, what we're saying is that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, or, or you cannot be renewed to repentance so long as you continue in unbelief, mm-hmm. right? Or, right? I mean, well, that's we're, it. You're, we're, you were right earlier when you said we're talking here about uh, just another expression of the um, unpardonable sin, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, where, as in the case of the Pharisees, they had they had seen and tasted and experienced and witnessed firsthand the undeniable miracles uh, through Jesus, and yet they just they didn't walk away just kind of in doubt. They basically spit in his face and says, "You're doing this by the power of the devil," um, and that's why it is impossible to renew them unto repentance because they have crossed a line in the hardening of their own hearts. That um, that puts them beyond the reach of grace, not because God's grace can't reach into the the farthest depths of human sin, but because the very nature of their sin is that they have hardened themselves beyond the point of repentance. Hmm. And by the way, just one other thing here, that if I can throw this in, because I know we're almost out of time. Think about what the the other view would entail. If, in fact, you believe that the author is describing born-again people who are truly saved, who then repudiate the faith and become truly lost, think about what that means. They once were lost, then they get saved, then they get lost again. And the author says it is impossible to renew them unto repentance, which means twice lost, always lost. Hmm. You know, I say that because people um, make fun of us who believe in once saved, always saved. 
Well, the alternative is you have to believe in twice lost, always lost, because you were lost once, then you get saved, then you get lost again. And if that's the right view, that it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance yet again. Hey, it does talk about the second death. That's the bad thing in Revelation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so so can we crash this plane from back up at 25,000 feet? Are we cool? Yeah, let's, let's bring it down. Um, no, no, crash. I, I'm okay. not saying bring it down. I'm just saying we're <laughs> dropping it. Okay. Uh, I hope this has been encouragement to you guys um, to uh, go through some of these problem passages. We're going to continue next week and talk about James chapter 2 and the... Uh, idea of salvation by faith alone and james's statement specifically that says salvation is not by faith alone how do we as protestants who believe that salvation is by faith alone deal with that well you have to join us next week folks to find out about that tim sam good to have you and we will see you next week you've been listening to theology unplugged visit our itunes page by searching theology unplugged at the itunes store all episodes are available as free downloads Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.